welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 117 for Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. I'm your host, Ken Gagne. I have interviewed multiple esport athletes on this podcast, people who are competitive gamers in everything from Call of Duty to Super Smash Brothers. But what are the demands on those players? Other than being good at the game, being in esports, which is highly competitive by its nature, can be very demanding on the body and the mind. And so I thought today we would invite a medical healthcare professional onto the show to talk about all different aspects of esports and healthcare. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lindsay Miglior, aka Gamer Doc, who is an esports physician and the founder and executive director of Queer Women of Esports. Hello, Dr. Lindsay. Hi, Ken. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing good now that I'm here and now that I'm on audio and, and not video all day. So very yes. happy. <laughs> me too. I've been on Zoom all day. I'm, this is a relief for me. So thank you. Yeah, Zoom fatigue is real. Speaking of fatigue, I understand you just got back from PAX West, which at the time of this recording was less than a week ago. How was that? It was wild. It was a yeah. lot of fun. Uh, so I've never been to PAX West before, surprisingly. Um, and uh, apparently this was like a shadow of its former self because of obviously a lot of people um, pulled out because of COVID, but I just had an incredible time. I met some really amazing people. I, you know, the past year and a half, we've all been making these friends online and strengthening these relationships, but we haven't met a lot of them, but I met some, some people that I've been working with. I gave a couple talks. It was fantastic. Fantastic. And you felt safe there? Yeah, I mean, so I got COVID tested uh, the, the you know two days before I left. I'm fully vaccinated. I wore a mask indoors everywhere. Uh, safety for me right now is I'm just like following strict CDC guidelines and everything I do. Since day one, I've been following CDC guidelines. They're smarter than me, um, and I've just been you know doing that. So it's I, luckily I don't have any children at home. So that's like the biggest thing right now for me. So. I, I, did, I felt safe. Good. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. I've never been to PAX West. I've been to every PAX East. I'm already wondering what I'm going to do next year, like six months from now. Right. But in the meantime, we have so many other topics to talk about. Give us a little bit of background. You go by GamerDoc online. You are GamerDoc underscore on Twitter. So who or what is GamerDoc? So I was in the traditional medicine field for quite some time. And I was obviously playing video games. I'm, I'm like, I'm a gamer. I've been a gamer my entire life. And like any good gamer, when, you know, the times get tough, I play more video games. It's a, it's a form of stress really for me. It's either I'm going to go for a run, I'm going to go rock climbing, or I'm going to play video games. And so med school was a hard time. And so I played a lot of video games. And all my other med school friends were also playing a lot of video games. And we started to get injured or we started to have pain from gaming. And, and um, at the time, I didn't realize it was from gaming. So we're starting to get these these injuries that are cropping up that are very strange. Um, and, you know, we, we, you go to the doctor, you, you, go, you ask your attending, you ask your boss about it. And they're like, when does it hurt? I'm like, when, when I play video games. And so what do they say? They say, okay, if it hurts when you play video games, stop playing video games, which to me, is never, ever, ever, ever going to happen. I'm going to be that like 95 year old rocking out an N64 emulator in the in the old folks' home. And so when I when I started to look up, you know, why am I? I'm, I'm a 
doctor. I look up why things happen. Why am I getting injured when I play video games? What are the injuries? What are, how do I prevent them? There was no, not, there was no information out there. And so I said, okay, is this something that I'm okay with? Am I going to spend my life in traditional sports doing stuff that we already know exists? We already know it's happening. Or do I want to be the one finding the answers? So that's really how GamerDoc was launched. And I understand that part of this realization came to you while you were hiking the Appalachian Trail. (laughs) Yeah, it did. It did. You know, there's not a lot of times in life that I have sat by myself with no technology, right? S- sitting by yourself with with no technology, you're not you're not scrolling through Twitter, you're not looking at I waste so much you're not checking your stocks. You're sitting by yourself, walking by yourself in silence. And I did that for two months. No technology, no one else on the trail with me. And so you start to realize things about yourself. You start to uncover parts of your personality you didn't know were there. And one of the things that I realized was that I wanted to spend my life doing something that I was passionate about. And I, I thought at the time I wanted to be an NFL team doctor, right? I, I'm a big football fan, let's go Lions. And I thought I wanted to be on the sidelines of, of NFL games, NFL football games, and I wanted to be treating those athletes. And then I realized, is that, is that what I really want? Do I really want to make you know, like take these dudes who are millionaires who are smashing their bodies into other people over and over again. Is that what I want? And I realized my, my, my true passion at the end of the day, the thing that I can do over and over again without getting tired, without stopping is playing video games and talking about video games. And I had that realization and I, you know, I, I got back and I was like, I'm going to do this. I am going to make this a reality. And, you know, it took me six years, but no, five years, but it's a reality now. So it's great. What exactly was it that took five years? This was just not an overnight, huh, I'm going to shift focus from traditional medicine to esports. So traditional medicine is a very stereotyped path. So if you want to go to med school, you are in under, you know, in high school, you have to start shadowing people, shadowing doctors, getting that experience. In college, you have to do community service hours. You have to continue to shadow doctors. You have to volunteer in a hospital. You have to take your prerequisites. You have to take physics. You have to take um, anatomy. You have to take biology, chemistry. Uh, and then you get into med school. And once you're into med school, your first two years are book learning. And then you take a test at the end of the second year. And your third and fourth years are in the hospital. And then at the end of that, you pick your specialty you want to go into. And you get matched into your specialty and, and they find a job for you. They say, here's your job. And so you spend the next four or five years um, working in that job. There's no choice. There's no innovation. There's no there's no creativity. You're on once you once you get accepted to medical school, you come off that roller coaster ride 10 years later and you haven't made a choice about your career. You sure you can pick your specialty, but you're not picking where you work, you're not do, you're not making all these choices. Um and going from that to knowing that my career is laid out for me for the rest of my life, right? I could have went directly from residency into an academic job, made a crap ton of money and spent my life doing that. There's no esports medicine job that I can go go into. There's no job that I say, hey, I want to apply for this. I had to make it up, right? I had to teach people. And as, and as a doctor, I, I've never in my life been to someone and said, hey, you need me, right? That's never happened. They just come to my clinic with pain. In esports, I have to go to people and say, you need a doctor. And they're like, for what? I'm like, because you're going to get injured. And they're like, no, I'm not. Prove it. 
So I have to prove that first. So the first thing I had to do was create the culture and help cultivate this culture that um, Kate McGee has been working on as well. Telling people that they can get injured playing video games. It is preventable and you need to see a doctor if you get injured. So, you know, that's really why it took so long. Is it a different kind of medicine? Like if you could have specialized in esports in med school, had that been an option, would this have made your career easier? A hundred percent. And that's one of the things that I'm working on. You know, in med school, we take courses on different subspecialties of medicine, on pediatrics, on surgery, on cardiology, on pulmonology. Uh, and one of the things I'm working on is getting an esports medicine curriculum at certain schools as as an elective, right? You don't need, no one, not everyone needs to know this. I mean, they they do because if you're a pediatrician or a primary care doctor, someone's going to come to you with an esports injury, and if you don't, or a gaming injury, and if you don't recognize it, then your patients are going to suffer. But that is the future I would like to see in like 20 years. But I'm working on creating esports curriculums at med schools and at residencies um, so that people can get training. And you know, right now I. I was at a medical convention right before COVID hit and I was talking about video game injuries and I, I started talking and half of the audience laughed. I mean, they weren't being jerks. They thought I was kidding. And then I kept talking and, and you know, half of them were offended by the fact that I was talking about this at their esteemed medical convention. Um, and the other half started to get interested. But the thing is, you know, you're not going to get 56-year-old doctors involved. Um, you know, they're in their career paths. They've done their thing. So it really is about teaching the medical students and having them come up knowing that this is a career path, to be honest. And part of you filling that educational gap is the publication of a book you edited earlier this year, Handbook of Esports Medicine, Clinical Aspects of Competitive Video Gaming, uh, just came out in May from Springer. I'm guessing from the price, this is more aimed at medical <laughs> professionals as opposed to the casual reader. So I, you know, when I was a medical student, when I was a resident and an intern, if I had a question about basic science, right? Basic science, like um, what happens to your lungs when you smoke cigarettes, right? I can look that up in a textbook. I can go to my textbook, either my PDF or on my bookshelf, and I can open a book. I can flip to that page. I can read it. I can learn it. I can understand it. And that is how a lot of us learn. If you want to learn about esports medicine, if you want to learn about video game injuries, there is no resource, there was no resource on the collection of injuries and things that affect them, right? You can go to articles that I've written, you can go to um, different for-profit entities, websites, and they'll give you some resources. Um, but there was no centralized place to find scientifically backed information because that's the thing about books, right? If you publish it through a medical publisher, it's been peer reviewed. It has resources. It has references. It's not just made up. Um, and so I wanted to create a textbook for medical students and health professionals who wanted to get into video gaming. But my publishers came back to me and they're like, look, you know who buys textbooks? med students. It's like, do you want to only sell books to med students? And I was like, no, it's like, we're going to call it a handbook and you're going to make it a little bit more user-friendly. So yeah, it is um, similarly priced for a, for a, a, a smaller sized textbook. Um, it took two and a half years of my life so I know I wanted to charge like a thousand dollars a book. <laughs> so I have my annual physical next month. I kind of want to buy one, and give it as a gift to my doctor. Oh my God, please do it. Please do it. <laughs> 
Well, it's heartening to know that the Kindle edition is more affordable. And especially with Kindle, it, you can search it more easily because it's an ebook. So maybe yeah. I will uh, pursue that option instead. Yeah. And it's also, it's not, so I have a, I have a couple books that are going to be out in the next couple of years that are marketed towards the general audience. But, um, you know, if you want to, we have lots of people out there who want to help the performance of esports athletes and gamers who want to treat video gamers. They want to create a livelihood off of off of gaming and esports medicine. Um, you know, if you want to have someone's health in your hands and, you know, you can spend 80 bucks on a book, the rest of the audience, you know, I, I get it. I totally get it, but that's not, that's not an investment in your, in your career. So don't worry. There'll be a book one day. That'll be like 30 bucks. I promise. Oh, sure. I've been on an adjunct faculty in Boston. I've assigned textbooks and I've been a grad student. I know how much they cost. Yes, yes. I, I'm sorry if I implied that this is not a reasonable price. I just wanted to clarify the audience. No, you're perfect. And you said you got up at these conferences and you started talking about sports injuries. What sort of injuries do esport athletes experience? We all um, have seen traditional sports injuries, right? Because they get played on the news, they get played on ESPN over and over again, they go around Twitter, social media. We see Alex Smith get hit, get sacked, right? We, we saw Alex Smith get sacked. We saw his leg turn sideways. It was very clear he broke his leg. We knew that his injury was from football. No one is arguing that Alex Smith got injured outside of football. That is not the case in esports, right? So in traditional sports, we have what's called acute injuries. You get hit, your ACL tears. You tear, uh, you, you twist your ankle, you sprain your ankle. Um, in video gaming, we have what's called acute on chronic injuries. So a chronic injury is something that is, is been, you've been dealing with for a while. So you are a, um, League of Legends player and you have been spamming QWER, you know, a thousand times in an hour, 10,000 times in a day for four, five, six, seven, eight years, right? You're, you're clicking those keys over and over again with your pinky, your ring, your middle, and your index finger and your thumb. You're moving your wrist around. Your opposite hand is using the mouse and it's moving it um, around to aim. And you, the tendons, right, those tiny little muscles in your hand and the tendons in your hand, we're not meant to do the things that we do, right? They're not meant to click a button over and over and over again. The, the, the structure of the tendon wasn't meant for that. The structure of the tendon was meant to reach up, grab and hold onto a tree and, and climb up. It was meant to be able to push yourself up from the ground to manipulate tools. Um, and so what we see is over time, the tendon starts to change. It starts to become different. It starts to adapt because it gets little tears in it and that tear... Uh, heals itself, but it heals in a different way to adapt for this new trauma that we have, right? These, this, um, this micro trauma, this, this repetitive movement, this repetitive strain. And so eight years later, you have a tendon that is structurally and fundamentally different than it was when you started playing video games. And so you decide, um, you know, you just got signed to a, a new esports org and, and you want to get a, you want to get a hot body, right? You want to look sexy for all your new Twitter followers. So you go to the gym and you start working out and you start bench pressing. And all of a sudden you're on your third day of bench pressing and you feel a sudden pain in the back of your wrist during bench pressing, right? You go to the doctor and they say, oh, you tore a ligament in your hand. You tore a tendon in your hand from bench pressing. Is that injury from bench pressing? No, it's from gaming. You just put a force that that weakened tendon couldn't handle 
during bench pressing. And that is really what we see in game years, these repetitive strain injuries of the hand. We also see nerve compressions. We see nerve compressions at the wrist, at the elbow, and the neck. Um, we see a lot of postural issues that can can have long-term consequences. Uh, so, so things really like that. You mentioned that when doctors see injuries in traditional athletes, they treat the injury. And when they see the kinds of injuries that you just described in an esports athlete, they tell them to just stop playing video games. Why is that discrepancy exist? Truly, they probably don't realize or ask that it is from video gaming because we have this lack of knowledge around the fact that you can get injured playing video games. So if you don't know you can get injured playing video games as a player, when you feel that strain in your wrist when you're bench pressing, you tell your doctor you got injured weightlifting. And your doctor doesn't ask any follow-up questions because they probably don't even know you play video games and you're not talking to them about the numbness and tingling you were feeling in your fingers for the past four years. So the doctor doesn't ask the question, the patient doesn't volunteer the information, and so we all think it's from weightlifting. And so we treat the injury like it's weightlifting related. And so really, like that is what we're what we're seeing most of the time. The, the, the fact is, is that doctors aren't asking or attributing these injuries to video gaming. I'm working on that. I'm trying to work on, you know, educating the medical community on this fact that it can happen. And that's largely what the, the handbook is accomplishing is that they get this idea in their mind. Um, but, you know, it's, it's an uphill battle and it, it's hard because how do you, how do you fix an injury? How do you prevent an injury you don't know exists? And so that's the first thing we're really working on. So why would healthcare professionals be aggrieved to hear you speaking about this. It seems like a great opportunity for them to become aware of something that they had previously overlooked and thus give a better diagnosis and treatment to their patients. You've met doctors. <laughs> we don't want to doctors. We don't want to know things that like we didn't know existed. That's like a huge hit to our ego. Mm. Um, <laughs> but I mean also the medicine is is evidence-based, right? We're evidence-based. How do we know that ACL tears happen from basketball? Well, thousands and thousands of people a year get injured playing basketball, present to the present to the emergency room, and all that data gets recorded. It goes into a, a report, and the report comes out every 10 years, and we get we get to write all these fancy papers off of it, like and saying that, hey, we we looked at all the injuries that happened because of football in the past 10 years. And we found that the top injuries that football players face are, are concussions, ACL tears and quad tent, you know, leg injuries. I just made that last one up because I can't remember it. Um, and so we have that data and we, and we, we base our treatments and we base our injury prevention protocols on, on that data. There is not, not currently that data that exists in esports medicine. You know, a lot of, what I'm saying, a lot of what's written in that book, you know, we're very honest in the intro to that book. We say there isn't as much data as we like. So, you know, these case studies, these case studies we're pulling this information from as a patient population of 40, or, you know, this paper that we're pulling this information from is extrapolated from office workers. And um, there, there isn't a lot of good data out there because the people who are funding the studies, the people who are coming up with these studies are in the higher echelons of the organization and, and they're older and they don't know about video gaming. They don't play video gaming themselves. So they're not allocating money to do the studies. If you're not allocating money to do the studies, you don't have the attention and the knowledge and the evidence to back it up. So more data is coming. More papers are being published and it's fantastic. But um, we're still not where we need to be in terms of, of data. 
So how do you convince people that they need you? You said that that's one of the things that is unique to your role is that usually people come to doctors with pain and now you need to go to them. And how do you say, look, this is what's happening to your body and you need me? I bring the pain. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) I bring the pain. (laughs) I say, okay, I I bet you I can find an injury on you. And they're like, what? I don't have any pain. I'm like, you don't. It's like you really don't have any pain. I was like, you you haven't felt numbness and tingling in your in your wrist or, or in your pinky and your ring finger after long gaming sessions. They're like, maybe, yeah, maybe. I was like, have you you know you don't wake up in the morning with cold hands you need to shake out. You know you don't get um, blurry vision that goes away when you blink. Like you you haven't experienced those things. And and so then we, you know, once you start getting into what the actual symptoms are, because these patients are young, right? They're 19, 20, 21. They're not an end stage carpal tunnel, but they do have early stage carpal tunnel, um, which is very uncommon in that patient population. You know, you normally see that in our 50 and 60 year olds. So the, the warning signs are subtle, right? Numbness, tingling. These are early warning signs of nerve damage. Um, it's like if you, you know, you, you sit on your foot, and it goes asleep, right? And, and it starts to wake up and you feel that, that it's called paresthesia. That is one of the early signs of nerve damage. That's one of the ways I, I find the pain. Um, another thing is pretty early on in my career, I realized that if I walk around telling people, listen to me and it's going to make you healthier, no one cares. No one cares, especially not young people, because we, you know, we all think we're invincible and we're never going to die. And you know, the the Mountain Dew we drink isn't going to cause diabetes until it does. The cigarettes we smoke isn't going to cause lung cancer until it does. The way we sit isn't going to cause back pain until it does. So I spin it the way: Hey, listen to what I'm doing and 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 do these things because it's going to make you play better. And that's something that I can prove, right? So warming up before you play video games is something we should all be doing. Every single person who plays video games should be warming up for at least 20 seconds prior to sitting down to play video games. Well, that is going to prevent injuries, but it's also going to make your reaction time a little bit faster and, and, and your hands easier to maneuver in the beginning. And, and that is something that I can prove immediately to them. And once you tell people it's going to make them play better, you know, better video games, then they're like, yeah, let's go. So that's really my, my strategies. I'm certainly familiar with warm-ups. I do vocal warm-ups before every podcast, but what sort of warm-ups do you do before playing video games? Um, now I want to know your vocal warm-ups, though, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> lanolin, lanolin. That'll be the outtake for this podcast. Uh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, so warming up is something that's really interesting because why is it called warming up? Uh, well, it's called warming up because you are activating muscles and activating muscles, your working muscles require more blood flow in order because they're working faster. They're, you know, they're, they're consuming more ATP. They need more ATP. They need more blood flow. So your body opens up the blood flow to these muscles that are working and it allows more blood to flow to the area. Well, blood is 98.6 degrees. So it raises the temperature of your fingers and your hand to 98.6 degrees. And at that elevated temperature, your enzymes work faster, your nerves conduct faster, your muscles are more elastic, right? So for warming up for gaming, what I say is, you know, start with, it, it doesn't have to be wild. It doesn't have to be a super long warm up. You know, I, we, I played college basketball and we would warm up for like 45 minutes and I hated it. It was so boring. But for, for gaming, all you got to do is, is do some wrist circles, right? Do some wrist circles, do some shoulder circles, do some neck circles. This isn't medical advice. Um, 
and my, my favorite my favorite gaming warm up is is what I call a star jump for your hand. So you start with a, a balled fist, right? You ball your hand up into a fist as, as tight as you can, and then you extend your fingers backwards and you pull them to the side and you extend your wrist back. And so you're about to like now you before you're ready to punch someone, now you can slap someone. And then you, you go back into a closed fist and then you open up into the slap hand and you do that as fast as you can, right? Go from closed fist to open hand as fast as you can. If you do that 10 times, you start to feel the muscles in your forearm fatiguing. You start to feel the muscles in your hand fatiguing. This is warming up all of those muscles. So they're going to be ready to, you know, virtually slap people. So that those are, that's what I recommend. You mentioned that you could have pursued a career in traditional sports, treating NFL athletes who make millions of dollars. <laughs> people with millions of dollars can't afford their own specialized physicians. Mm-hmm. Now you're treating esport athletes. Is the same budget there? How, how can they afford services like this? Uh, so early injury prevention protocols in traditional sports um, made one thing very clear, and that is preventing injuries shouldn't be the responsibility of the individual player. If you want to prevent injuries in a middle schooler, you're not going to tell the middle schooler, hey, these are all the things you need to do to not get injured, right? You're going to talk to the coaches. You're going to talk to the governing bodies. You're going to talk to, you know, the NFL was having all these terrible face injuries and neck and, you know, face injuries, face lacerations, people getting hit by sticks and pucks in the face, disfiguring them. And so they said, all right, you guys have to wear half shields now. You can't have an open face helmet anymore. You know, all, all the new players can't have that anymore. So they, they added an equipment modification that led to a decrease in injuries. Um, USA Hockey had noticed that um, all of the, I think it was 14U or 12U players, there is a higher incidence of concussions and body injuries at this level. And it was the first year that they had introduced checking. And they found that the kids were just a little too young to hit each other. They were just a little, they couldn't protect their bodies. They didn't know how to do it safely. So they raised the age of checking by two years and it drastically decreased the rate of injury, right? So they, they changed a rule and it, and it, it led to, de- you know, decrease in injuries. So for esports, it's the same thing. The, the onus should fall on the governing bodies and on the esports organizations. If you are a multi-million dollar esports organization and you do not have someone on staff taking care of the health and wellness of your players, that's your fault, right? It's not your, it's not the player's fault if they get injured, if they're working for a multi-million dollar esports organization. You know, on Twitter, people will announce their retirements from gaming and, you know, you, you, you read their, you know, their, their twit longer and it says, um, you know, I have this injury and it's been plaguing me for years and I, I just can't shake. I ever, I can't, I can't play video games without pain anymore. And, and so you, you read what their injury is and it's like, you know, I have head forward posture or I have mild scoliosis that is ridiculous to me that no one at their esports organization gave them the resources to rehabilitate themselves. You know, talk about Alex Smith. He fractured his leg and underwent like something like 17 surgeries. His, his injury was so bad. They almost had to amputate it because his injury was so bad. And that dude, two years later, returned to football and took a bunch of snaps and got tackled and his leg was fine, right? Alex Smith can almost lose his leg because his injury is so bad, but you're telling me a 23-year-old with back pain can't be rehabilitated, right? That's on the esports organizations. It is. So we're working on it. A lot more esports organizations are waking up to that fact. Um, Immortals has Robert Yip as the head of performance. Um, CLG has Summer Scott. 
so, you know, uh, Misfits Gaming has Dr. Carolyn Rubenstein. Uh, so they are waking up, but um, we definitely need the onus needs to be on these orgs who can pay for these services. I love the example you gave about the helmets because it sounds like a lot of video game injuries may be stemming from ergonomics. As we all now work from home during the pandemic, I know how important it is to have the right desk and the right chair and just not be hunched over your laptop all day. And so if the esports organizations can afford this equipment, they should invest in their players. Completely, completely. I am, you know, when when the work from home thing happened, it was also when I had um, stopped my full-time hospital job and I was um, working, I was working, I was doing part-time esports and full-time hospital and and then, then it switched. So I was sitting in a, and it was also, you know, the COVID hit, how COVID hit. So my wife was working from home and I was pushed into a small corner of our bedroom and a real chair didn't fit in the corner. So I was sitting in an Ikea um, you know, office or an Ikea dining room table chair. And I herniated a disc in my back two weeks before my wedding, two weeks before my wedding, I herniated a disc in my back. Um, you know, I did it when I was hiking, but it was because I was sitting in a crappy chair for, for eight weeks for 12 to 14 hours a day, not getting up, not taking rests. Ergonomics are huge. You know, a, a good chair can can fundamentally impact the quality of your life. Back pain can be debilitating. And it starts it starts now, right? It starts when you're younger, when you don't have back pain. Preventative care is so much easier than treating a problem. And simple ergonomics needs need to be taught to everyone, right? So you're when you're sitting, your feet should be flat on the ground. Your hips should be at or at your knee level or just above, never below. Your elbows should be, you know, no less than 90 degrees or a little bit, a little bit more open. Um, your shoulders should not be shrugged up and your screen should be an arm's length ahead of you, uh, in front of you. And the monitor should be just at eye level or a little bit below. But the problem is, is that if you want a chair and you want a gaming chair and you're under five foot six, good luck. Good luck because most chairs, most gaming chairs were made from um, leftover luxury car seats that they had. And most gaming chairs are made for dudes five, seven to six feet tall. And so, you know, ergonomics are hard because you, even if you can't, if you are paying attention to them, it's hard to get the right equipment right now. I guarantee you that everybody listening to this podcast, as you outlined those basic ergonomics, immediately <laughs> they straightened up, they put their feet on the floor. And I know this because I just did. Yeah, exactly. And even when you are in that good posture, right? So my, my good friend, Kate McGee says, um, the best posture is your next posture. So movement is really good when you're sitting. You really, you always want to be getting up, you know, every every hour and a half you're sitting down, just get up and, and, and stretch it out just for a couple seconds, right? People, the, the standing desk rage hit some hit really hard and everyone was standing all the time. And all of a sudden we see people with, with back pain because their, um, their hips and their back aren't used to standing all day. You know, a standing desk isn't, isn't the best all the time. A sitting desk isn't the best all the time. It's all about movement. It's all about finding finding the next movement and not being static. We're not static beings. We're dynamic beings. So being, you know, being, be dynamic. Yep. One of the worst things, and there were many bad things about working at GameStop was being on my feet all day. Mm. My goodness. Yep. So speaking of moving, have you started noticing different injuries coming from VR? I suppose that's not really penetrated the esports world as much yet. I think VR is going to be really cool. Um, you know, if you look at, I, I love to look at trends. I love to try and predict the future. And 
VR is going to be huge in esports and gaming in the future, and so is mobile gaming. And you take all the problems that we have with PC and console gaming, you multiply them by like a billion, and that's what we're going to see with mobile and VR gaming. VR gaming is going to be so interesting because it's going to be you're going to be moving, right? You're going to be up and moving, but what are the movement patterns you're going to be doing? Um, we're going to see different repetitive strain injuries. We're, I think we're going to see more, and we are seeing more injuries akin to the sport they're mimicking, right? So if you're doing VR Beat Saber, you're doing a lot of hand and wrist movements and arm movements. And so we're seeing more shoulder issues. And I, there's zero data on this. So this is all from my head and from what I've seen. Um, but we're seeing more shoulder injuries, more more elbow injuries from like hyperextension. Um, so yeah, it's definitely super interesting. Um, and I, I can't wait to see the data in the future on it. Well, another emerging trend, we were talking about working from home, and a lot of people in the last year not wanting to venture outside their house for safety reasons have relied on telehealth. Does that apply to the sort of esports practice that you do as well? Telehealth is going to be a huge frontier for medicine. You know, there's no reason you need to go to the dermatologist anymore. You know, you can do a skin inspection at home. There's no reason you need to go into the doctor for routine preventative care most of the time. Um, there are certain things, obviously, that you need to go to the doctor for, but I think telehealth is going to be huge. But given it's medicine, we're always going to be behind in technology. I, I still have people I know who use paper charts. They don't want to, they don't want to use electronic medical records. Um, so telehealth, esports is a great a great venue, and gaming is a great venue for telehealth, especially because people are all over the country, all over the world. So it's uh, I, I think it's going to be a, a cool thing. You know, I've been doing telehealth um, recently. It's been fun. But, you know, a little side note, COVID kind of adjusted the um, rules around telehealth. So if you practice telehealth, you have to be licensed in the state you are in and also the state that the person you're talking to is in. But with COVID, they kind of relaxed those rules. So um, I think the laws surrounding telehealth are going to change and how we see telehealth is definitely going to change. The exact licensure requirements you just mentioned, I have found very restrictive because I'm a digital nomad. I'm in a different state almost every other month, and I can't have the same practitioner online because I'm never in the same state that they are in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's why I'm just working on getting licensed in every single major state that esports is in, so it's not an issue. <laughs> You're, and you're not exaggerating. You're actually doing that? Yeah. I, I, my, my license for California and um, Washington State are pending right now. So, oh, That's fantastic. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work, but I hope it's worth it. It's a lot of work. If you and the esports organizations with their millions of dollars collectively are helping to, review, uh, to oversee the physical health of their athletes, is it also the esports organization's responsibility to supervise the mental health? And who can they hire for that? Yeah, I, I when I say health, I'm talking physical, mental health. When I was doing more traditional medicine, every single visit I would have at least a little bit of a mental health check-in. Um, because mental health is it's just not paid attention to. And then when you do pay attention to, there's this huge stigma attached to it, right? Like people have no problem saying, Oh, I sprained my ankle, right? They they want you to sign their cast when they break their arm. But if they have an ADHD diagnosis or they're struggling with adjustment disorder, they don't want anyone to know because of the stigma that's attached to it. And especially in gaming, you know, we see a lot of burnout. We see a lot, a lot, a lot of burnout. And, and, um, 
you know, ADHD is also a big thing. I, this is, there's no data on this, just subjective, but um, people who have ADHD are hyperactive um, and have issues with attention, but then can hyper-focus on something, on very specific things. And gaming has always been one of them for a lot of people. And so in my opinion, in my experience, there's a lot of people who are drawn to gaming who have attention issues because it's that one thing that you can focus on. Um, and so we also see a lot of prescription drug use, a lot of um, Adderall abuse in esports um, and depression and anxiety. You know, you take people who have spent their whole lives training by themselves. You know, there's no really prescribed path to pro in the U.S. right now. The collegiate scene isn't as built out as we would like to see it. So when people show up to their first day of their team, it's it's the first time they've worked in this environment. Um, and it's it's stressful, and they you know they, oftentimes they're in a different country, a different city, uh, and so they don't have their support systems. And depression and anxiety are things that can hit in those situations. So, um, whoever is taking care of their health um, should be should be talking about all of the aspects of health, not just physical health. And if there are so few physicians so far with the specialty on esports and video game injuries, where do people go to find somebody like you besides GamerDoc.net? <laughs> So in traditional sports, if you want to work with, um, if, you, if you're on a, a football team, you're not seeing the doctor every day. You're probably only seeing them two or three times a year, right? So the major liaison to health in traditional sports is the athletic trainer. And they are the ones who are there every day in the training room. They're the ones taping ankles. They're the ones referring to the dietitian, referring to the doctor saying that this person needs an x-ray. Um, and, and right now in esports, that's the coach, which is an issue because they are often just former players themselves and don't have any medical training. So what we're seeing is the influx of performance coaches. Um, and these are people usually with master's degrees uh, or strength and conditioning certifications, things like that. And so we're definitely seeing an influx of, of that right now. So but the, you know the, the certified people are getting scooped up immediately by um, organizations. So if you are having esports or video gaming injuries and you don't want to talk to me, I, I'd recommend Kate McGee at 1HP, um, 1HP.org.com. I'm not sure if you can just Google 1HP or, or Dr. Kate McGee. She's also a, a co-editor on my book. 1HP has a, a very rich network of resources that can help you out. So I, I definitely recommend them. Awesome. Thank you. And there will be links to all those in the show notes at polygamer.net. Let's switch to talking about your other organization, Queer Women of Esports or QWE. What is the mission of QWE? The mission of QWE is to make gaming fun for everybody. You know, there, there's all these ways we can say it, but uh, gaming should be fun for everyone and esports should be open to everybody. So if you want to be the best at a sport, um, you have to train in that sport and you have to train against people who are as good as you, if not better. And in esports and in video gaming, if you want to train with people who are your level or better, you have to use voice communication. You have to use voice comms, especially, you know, if it's a team, if it's a team game, if it's most games, you have to communicate with your teammates. And the toxicity in online video gaming is disgusting. It is terrible. I will, uh, you know, turn on my voice comms and play squad fill every month or so just to remind people, you know, I'll take video and just to remind people of what happens as soon as you open your mouth as a woman, it's, it's terrible. The toxicity is terrible. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's for people of color for, for queer individuals. 
toxicity in gaming is not great. They did this really interesting study. You know, it's it's cool, but it's sad. And um, they had a computer play Halo, and they had computer play Halo at either you know being good, bad, or mediocre at Halo. And then they had the computer have a set phrase of set phrases. It would say in either a female voice or a male voice. And what they found was if um, there was a female voice, the toxicity they received was you know, swift and immediate. The male voice, even if they were the same skill level as the female voice, would receive much less hate, much less negative comments. Um, and the most interesting part of this study in my mind was the people who gave the hate to the, to the female voice were the lower skilled male players. The, the worse you were at Halo, the more likely you were to be toxic to women. And not surprising. Not surprising at all. Um, and so, you know, and when I when I tell people that, they're like, you know, I'm like, yeah, women face toxicity in gaming. They're like, yeah, everybody does. And I'm like, my, what I don't understand is how they're okay with that. You're just – it's like walk, being like, yeah, sometimes when I, when I go outside, you know, acid rain hits me right in the face, just melts all my skin off. It's like, What? Like we're we're cool with this. Um, so what TWE is doing is is trying to eliminate um, toxicity in gaming and also a bunch of other stuff to um, you know giving women if if you don't play against the best you're not going to be the best. Um, you're not going to get the job. You're not going to you know get the experience in esports. Even if you don't want to be a professional player, you still you know you still need esports experience to to work in the industry. So they don't have esports experience because they're pushed out because of toxicity in online gaming and thus they don't get the jobs and thus they don't get the career advancement and thus we see the esports industry like we see it now. So um, that's really what we're working on. I think this is the same study you're referring to, a 2015 study regarding Halo 3. It said that lower skilled male players were more hostile toward teammates with a female voice but behaved more submissively to players with a male voice. The mm-hmm. authors of the study argued, quote, female-initiated disruption of a male hierarchy incites <laughs> hostile behavior from poor-performing males who stand to lose the most status, end quote. Yeah, I love that study so much. And, and <laughs> I would encourage you to read the whole thing because it's so cool. But it's basically like there's this pool of people playing Halo um, who are competing to be the best, right? And there's let's say there's 100 people and they're all dudes. As soon as you open up the circle and include women, so now now it's 200 people, that worst dude, instead of being in 100th place, is now in 200th place, right? He stands to lose the most from inclusion because he has more competition and he's going to realize how terrible he is at video games. Um, and it's just, it's, a, it's an incredible study. I love that line and I love that you just brought that up. <laughs> well, thank you for the reminder. I hadn't thought of that in at least a year. So it's always going to be remembered. Uh, I'm looking at the website for Queer Women of Esports, uh, which is queeresports.org. And one of the lines you have is gaming is for everyone. Esports isn't yet. And we, we kind of just touched about how toxic that environment can be. But also, Gamergate was seven okay. years ago last month. Mm-hmm. Games, although this Polygamer podcast opens with the statement, games are for everyone. I consider that the ideal and not the reality, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So are esports like... Gamergate theoretically had nothing to do with esports specifically. Is esports even more toxic than traditional games? Oh, four million thousand oh, times. That's awful. Four, so 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 much more, so much more. I mean, you have Gamergate. You had what happened to Riot a couple of years ago. We have Activision Blizzard recently. You know, gaming itself is you know, it, it really isn't for everyone yet. But um, it's better. It's certainly better than esports because. 
in order to get involved in esports, you have to go full gaming, right? So you have to be, you're gaming all the time. A lot of us are, are gaming on the weekends or at nights. Um, but in order to be involved in esports, it's always games culture all the time. And it's competitive and it's, it's, it's a different mentality than gaming. And so it's just, it's exponentially worse, um, unfortunately, but we're, you know, we're working on it. So what's the solution for those who do want esports to be a safe environment? Should there be gender-based teams and competitions? Very good question. So the first thing is if you witness something that is um, discriminatory, speak up. Speak up. Um, in order for this industry to change, it's not going to change by women saying, please include us. It's not going to change by people of color saying, please include us. It's going to change by the people who are already included speaking up and saying, you know what, that gay slur you just said, not acceptable. That's not an acceptable way. It doesn't, it, that's not how we speak to each other. Um, it's going to, it's going to start by if you're in voice comms and um, a woman's voice pops up and the person you're playing with starts to get toxic, being like, dude, just chill out. Just be cool. Um, that's, that's how we, you know, it's, we have to start by changing the culture, um, and saying that, you know, behavior is unacceptable is really the first step. Um, it's not the last step. It's not the only step, but it's definitely the first step. All women, um, tournaments are really interesting because people are, are polarized over the fact, um, but there's this, there's this thing in life called stereotype threat. If you are aware of a stereotype, you're going to be more likely to fulfill that stereotype. So there's a stereotype that women are bad at math. If you tell women they're, they're bad at math before they take a math test, they are going to perform worse than if you would not have told them that. Um, and they took it one step further. Here's another great study around video gaming. They had male and female avatars and they, um, they had men or women controlling each one. It was, it was mixed. Um, and they found that if they told the, people who are controlling female avatars, that women were bad at math, the female avatars would perform worse on math problems in the game, regardless of whether they're controlled by men or women. So we have the stereotype that um, women are bad at video game, right? We have the stereotype that exists. And so women are less likely to enter tournaments. Young girls are less likely to pursue careers in gaming. So women-only tournaments allow people to have that experience of participating in this tournament when they otherwise probably wouldn't have entered at all. Um, women-only teams and you know, organizations have, we have this experience of being able to train and compete at a higher level without toxicity. So I think it's definitely necessary for now. We definitely need um, spaces that are safe and inclusive and have a lower barrier to entry for now. You know, people say, how, how do we know when we have an inclusive esports center, an esports industry, when we don't need women-only tournaments anymore? That, that is what, that is to me, when we don't need women-only tournaments anymore, that's how I know esports is inclusive. And speaking of being inclusive and being diverse, I saw in one of your previous interviews, you commented that high school esports teams tend to be more diverse when they don't have funding. Why is that? So the study came out, God, I think earlier this year, or maybe last year, and it looked at a bunch of programs and it looked at the demographics and it found that high school high school esports organizations that were student run, they were clubs, had amazing diversity, amazing, amazing, amazing diversity. But then as soon as you injected funding or made it a part of the high school officially, all that diversity got eliminated. And they interviewed the people who were on these teams and they said, you know, what happened when you got funding? And they said, well, we cared about winning and the women weren't as good. 
So we cut them. Oh no! Cut them off. Cut them off the team. <laughs> yeah. So, so you know, once you once you inject money and funding into it, women and people of color start to taper off. And is it because they're bad at video games? I don't. You know, I'm, I'm going to go with no. It's a really good question. There's lots of reasons. So. Um, when I showed up to the first day of my job at Georgetown, they had only hired one woman in six years before me. And I, they say, okay, we, you know, we're going to get you custom scrubs. All right. So tell us your size. And I said, okay, I'll, you know, it's a unisex scrub. I'll take an extra small. And they said, oh, we don't have extra smalls. I was like, okay, what's the small size you have? They're like, we have mediums, mediums. And I was like, I, I don't fit into a, a medium scrub. The V is going to be so low that my patients are going to take me seriously. They're going to be staring at the low V the whole time. Um, and that's a barrier to inclusion, right? You don't hire women because, and maybe the women don't want to come there because you don't make clothing for them. Um, you know, if you're on an esports team and, you, you know, for high school and you're going to travel for a competition... Are you where are the where are the kids rooming? Right? Are they all in one hotel room? Is there four in a hotel room? Is there is there a separate space for the for the girls to sleep in your in your event? Are there bathrooms for women? Um, it's it's we 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 say that like it's a joke, and people are like, of course there's bathrooms for women. When Hillary Clinton was running for president, um, she was she was debating on stage with the rest of the Democratic candidates, and she was late after a commercial break. The reason that she was late was because the women's bathroom was like a quarter of a mile away from the stage. All the men just went off backstage bathroom right there. Boom, 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 boom. She had to walk for like 10 minutes to get to the bathroom. Or not, 10 minutes is an exaggeration. But she came back and, and she was late and late on air and, and flustered because she was running to get back from the from the bathroom. You know, there's small barriers to inclusion that build up and start to push people out because they don't feel comfortable. Mm. Oh my gosh, that reminds me of the scene from Hidden Figures where she had to walk across campus yes. to go to the bathroom mm -hmm. and it impacted her performance. And, mm -hmm. you know, her boss, regardless of whatever his racial views were, mm -hmm. was, was just focused on the bottom line. He's like, it's not good for business to have separate bathrooms. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of business, you had also said that women tend to be over mentored and under sponsored. What does it mean to be? over mentored. I feel like being mentored is a, a good thing. So how can it be too much? So mentorship is when you provide people advice, right? Career advice. Um, you say, hey, this is where I think your career trajectory should go. Here's where I think you have lapses in your career. Here are some things that I think you should do in the future. People love to give women advice. People love to tell us what to do. You know, I'm at, I'm at the gym three, four times a week, I know what I'm doing. Um, and people will come up to me and tell me that I'm lifting wrong. I know, I know I'm not, right? I, I know I'm not. Um, and, or I'll be climbing and I'll be, I'll be sitting there. And one of the, one of my favorite things about climbing is trying to figure out how to get up, right? Like, like there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat. How am I going to get up this wall? And dudes will come over and be like, oh, you know, if you, you can do this, this way. And I'm like, I know, I like, just let me figure it out myself. There's actually a, a big sign in both of the bathroom that says women are like something like 90% more likely to get advice from men in the climbing gym. People love, we, we don't need advice. We don't need advice. We need to be hired. We need to be given opportunities. We, so sponsorship is active mentorship. Sponsorship is saying, Hey, I have an opportunity 
and I would like you to do it. I have a paper that I'm writing. I would like you to be my co-author. I have a book I'm writing. I would like you to author one of the chapters. I have a panel that I'm on. I would like you to moderate it. That is sponsorship, active, direct opportunities, right? It's the difference between handing them, you know, holding the mic in your hand and, and, and holding it in front of someone's mouth versus actively handing the microphone to them. Um, and, you know, QWE has a mentorship pro- program, but it is a sponsorship program because if you say sponsorship, everyone thinks of AA. Um, but, but that's really the difference. And, and that is what everyone should be thinking about when you, when you're, when you want to make this career, you know, this space more inclusive, are you giving advice or are you giving opportunities? So it's both a issue of giving too much advice and also mm-hmm. the issue of the advice being disproportionate to these sponsorship opportunities. Exactly. It's it's performative allyship at the end of the day. It's you're putting on a performance to make yourself feel good versus actually doing things to help enact change. And inviting somebody to say come to Paxis to moderate a panel and pay their way. Not everybody has the budget to do that, but there are sponsorship opportunities that are less expensive, like just mm-hmm. making introductions and giving opportunities. Exactly. Excellent. So let's take a a quick look backward. You said that you were working on the book that came out this year for two and a half years, which means you started in late 2018. But as far as I know, the identity of GamerDoc didn't start until summer of 2020. So what initiated that transformation? I was in a um, restrictive contract where I could not start a business until then. So I... Uh, couldn't take money for things. I couldn't um, start providing services that I charged for. So I created a social media profile. I was really active on on Twitter under, you know, I started using GamerDoc back then um, and was just providing free educational content. I was, I was speaking on panels. I wasn't charging. I was, I was providing educational resources. I wasn't charging. I was doing events. I wasn't charging. Um, and you know, I did that for a, a while, a long time, and then got out of my contract and and finally could officially call it a business. And it was fantastic. So you did that around the same time that you launched Queer Women of Esports. So those have both been around for a little over a year now. What are some of your proudest moments or accomplishments in the year of the, of the existence of those two entities? <sighs> I mean, the book was was fantastic. I did not expect the emotion that I felt when I held that book in my hands because I was already done, right? The the book, I I didn't know how to publish books. You know, no one knows what they're doing until they figure it out. But I thought how you publish a book was you write the book and then you find a publisher. When in actuality, it's you you have the concept for the book, you find a publisher, and then the publisher says, okay, now write the book on this timeline. And so I started writing the book and um, started recruiting authors and everyone was like, okay, well, who's your publisher? I was like, I don't have one yet. We haven't finished the book. And they're like, What? So I reached out to Springer and submitted the book re- proposal and they got back to me and they're like, okay, what, you know, when can the book be done? And I was like, well, it's done. Like, what do you mean? It's done. It's done. So, I, you know, you send them the book and they take two months and they, they send them you back their edits and they say, okay, do this, do this, do this. And so you rewrite and they send it back to you. And, you know, it's, it's a long drawn out process. The book was done for a while, but then the moment when I, physically opened the box and held it in my hand, I was just overcome with emotion because it was a real thing. It was a real thing I was holding in my hand. It wasn't just a Google Doc that I've been editing for thousands of hours. Um, so that for, for GamerDoc, that was really the best moment this past year. You know, there's been at PAX West, it was that was a wild moment too. I you know, I was giving a solo talk on how to get better at gaming and 
the attendance for PAX West wasn't, wasn't great. Um, the first panel I gave up, gave was like halfway empty. Um, and this was a solo talk. So I was like, Oh my God, if people don't come, it's because of me. I can't blame it on anything else other than me. And I, I, I go up, you know, I'm a good little doctor. So I, I'm half an hour early and actually it's the opposite of being a good doctor, but I'm, I'm half an hour early and I walk up the escalator and, and I hear someone yelling, if you're in line for how to get good at gaming, the end is upstairs. And there's like a hundred people in line to see my talk half an hour early. And we actually had to turn away more people than we could let in because of the capacity of the room. And, and that just made me feel good. For QWE, I would have to say it's our mentorship program. It, we're just, it's just amazing. Just special thanks to our sponsors at Aim Lab. You know, they have just been really incredible with sponsoring the program. Um, you know, Wayne Mackey really puts his money where his mouth is. But just hearing the feedback from our mentees who have had career opportunities come out, you know, in our second cycle, having career opportunities come out of their experience with us has just been outstanding. And it's just been a great, great time. That's wonderful. And congratulations again on the book. One of a, a, a guest on the Polygamer podcast earlier this year, Maya Weinstock, is, has written a book about Mildred Dresselhaus, a MIT professor. And that book has come out next year from MIT Press. And she and I are Facebook friends, so I see all the different rounds of edits and revisions. And yeah. she's been involved in this process at some point for years. And even after she turned the book in, it's not done because yep. it just keeps going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> so that's our look back. What do you have coming forward? Anything that you want to tease that is coming down the pipeline? Uh, okay. So at, when you when you start something, right, when you're one of the founders of a field, you get to create your own job, right? Your job doesn't exist. You get to create your own job. So I've spent like the past year, six months doing some soul searching and being like, what do I want to do in my day to day? What do I want my life to look like? And I don't really know. Um, I'm just, I'm just doing what I love right now, which is great. Um, but I think I'm going to join an esports organization. I think I am. Um, I think I'm going to join an esports organization and either come on as like their chief wellness officer or like performance or, or something. Um, I'm, I'm, I've been talking to a couple orgs about it now. It, it, it might happen soon. It might not. I might change my mind. Um, and I'm also going to have some, I'm, I'm joining some more advisory boards with some gaming companies that are pretty big name coming out in the next couple of months and helping them produce products that are more ergonomic and, and safe. So I, I can't release names of either of those things yet until the contract is inked, but um, big lots of big things coming soon. Well, that's really exciting. A lot to look forward to. Whatever they are, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so as I've mentioned, you can be found on the website at gamerdoc.net, on Twitter at gamerdoc underscore. The Queer Women of Esports is queeresports.org. Is there anywhere else you want to plug today? No, I mean that's that's pretty much it. If you're uh, if you're interested in treating video gamers, if you made it this far into me talking, then buy my book. Um, but otherwise, <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, TikTok guys, I'm getting real. I'm trying to get into TikTok. The 14 year olds are so mean to me. Oh, they're so, they're so they're like I you know I post a funny clip of me playing Fortnite. You know I'm not trying to be a pro gamer. I'm not trying to do anything. And they're like they're like you're bad at gaming. I'm like yeah I am. What's your point? <laughs> so follow me on TikTok and say nice things in the comments. GamerDoc is my username, please. We will flood you with positivity. Please. The 14-year-olds, they're so mean. Oh, how dare they? Honestly. <laughs> let's see. Let's put them through med school and see how they feel. Yeah. 
Honestly. And do we need to offer any disclaimers about even though you're a medical professional, the advice on this podcast we're not held liable for? Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, this is not <laughs> medical advice. This is educational. This is not a doctor-patient relationship. Fantastic. Dr. Lindsay Miglior, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ken. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Thank you.